Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio. We're rocking in the studio here with uh, Cyber Jockey helping us out at the controls. That's right. We're rocking it out. <laughs> All right. We've got uh, the unsmoke instructor extraordinaire in the studio this week, Bill Wagon. Good afternoon, Joe. Welcome, Bill. On the phone with us is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick from Florida. Yeah. Hey, Joe, I'm in Studio F in Florida. Studio F for S. <laughs> well, welcome. Th- glad you could join us from Florida. How are things in, uh, what are your convention connections? Uh, maybe we shouldn't yeah. ask. No, connections, actually, it's doing well. The, the uh, event is pretty well attended. I would say they've probably got maybe three, probably over 300 people registered for the events. I think the numbers are up. The weather's very nice. The only problem is parking. They're doing all kinds of construction down here, and people are just having a great trouble getting in and out. You're in Clearwater. Other than that, things are good. Yeah, it's a pretty little city. Great. We'll jump in whenever you uh, want to uh, ask a question down there, Cliff. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. Thank you, sir. All right. We also have on the phone our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Hello, Dieter. Yes, good morning, good afternoon. Good morning. Or good evening, wherever it uh, may be. (laughs) Good to have you back again, Dieter. Actually, two weeks in a row now. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. And last but not least, our our guest today will be Mr. Larry Keller from the University of Pittsburgh. We'll bring him on in just a moment with a little introduction. Before we do that, though, let's uh, thank our sponsors, first of all. First one being... The uh, folks at Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease.com. Dot com. That's D-R-I hyphen E-A-Z dot com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Last but not least, please visit the iaqtraining.com website for the training you trust. You can contact the show by going to the TalkShoe site, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E, sign up for your PIN number and ID number, or you can go to our new internet spot at iaqradio.com 
and ask questions after the show, and we can uh, get back to you. I'm going to turn it over now to my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, for today's Microband Trivia Quiz. Congratulations go out to Chad Seams for answering last week's trivia question, which dealt with media and publishing. And the answer to the question was to tell us the connection between the word rosebud and newspaper. And that connection was made in a very, very famous movie called Citizen Kane, uh, produced and directed and starred in by a famous person named Orson Welles. This week's trivia question comes from... Uh, in deference to our guest, is going to come from safety and occupational health and hygiene. Uh, it's a two-part question. We want a definition of the word ergonomic. We want to know what that word means. And then I want to know what is the most common ergonomic injury reported among veterinary workers. Whoa. <laughs> Threw me there, Most Cliff. common ergonomic injury reported among veterinary workers. Veterinary uh, back to you, Joe. All right. CJ? Yeah, it's just a reminder to our listeners, when you go to answer the trivia question, go to forums.ieqradio.com, sign up for an account, and post the answer. Back to you, Joe. Thank you. And Cliff, did we get a, a correct answer on last week's? Yes, we did. It was uh, Citizen King. Oh, okay. I thought we had. Orson Welles. I'm getting confused from week to week here. The one before that was the uh, inventors of the different machines, I guess. Uh, Correct. Absolutely was. Uh, the answer to that question was all those people held patents for carpet cleaning equipment. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's move it on here. Our first, our first and only guest. Actually, we're going to do things a little differently today. Not a lot, but. We're going to bring on Mr. Larry Keller, who's a certified industrial hygienist and a certified safety professional. He's got over 25 and probably more now years of experience investigating and diagnosing indoor air quality problems as well as industrial hygiene and safety issues. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health. Prior to joining the graduate school's faculty, he had spent 11 years as the university's director of environmental health and safety, and as the director of EHS, he was responsible for handling, as you can imagine, a myriad of issues in hundreds of buildings and settings. His extensive experience at the university and prior experience in industry gives him a unique perspective on the problems building owners face in today's litigious environment. I think we've got some music. Right, thank you, CJ. We we came up with the safety dance just for you, Larry. How are you, sir? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Good, oh, good to be here, Joe. Great to have you with us. And um, before we move on, let's reintroduce our 
listeners to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow here. Dieter's been a CIH for many years. He's also got his doctorate in industrial hygiene and occupational health, and he's also been a professor at the Pitt Graduate School of Public Health. We kind of want to um, make this a little bit of a round-robin thing, but we're going to focus on Larry and then bring Dieter in from time to time. I think we found some music for Dieter finally. Did we get anything here yeah and in light, in light of the fact that he likes to go to sunny jamaica all the time oh, okay. i have some uh sunny sounding music that would probably be appropriate for what he would he be hearing on that island let's check it out CJ, you, you never cease to amaze me. <laughs> Dieter, are you with us? Yes. Okay, great, great. Welcome, Dieter. Yep. All can, right. Am, am I? You, can you hear me? We can hear you yeah. just fine. Oh, okay, good. Great. All right, let's start with Larry. What What is an industrial hygienist, Larry? And um, well, we'll follow up to that in a moment. Let's Let's try and nail down exactly what an industrial hygienist is. Well, the traditional def definition of industrial hygiene is uh, the art and science of anticipating, recognizing, evaluating, and controlling stresses that arise in the community or the workplace uh, that may contribute to ill health, the development of irritation, or, or uh, ultimately occupational disease. Okay. Larry, what's the difference between people that call themselves IHs and CIHs? And I, I hate acronyms, so you have to be clear about that. <laughs> well, uh, an industrial hygienist, or an IH, as uh, some people refer to themselves, uh, really uh, is someone who has a, an interest and uh, has adopted the title of industrial hygienist, either uh, because their mother said they could, or uh, <laughs> uh, that was what they chose to put on their business card. Uh, a certified industrial hygienist is a little different. Uh, it's a more rigorous uh, and professional designation. Uh, it was developed by the American Board of uh, Industrial Hygiene that was founded in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually, by Henry Smith in uh, the late 30s. And it was to provide a professional designation for those practitioners of uh, the arts of anticipating and recognizing and evaluating uh, occupational illness. Uh, because uh, at that time, uh, there, of course, was no uh, academic degree or any other kind of preparation. So a... Uh, a definition of industrial hygiene that would fit the uh, folks who came from the many, many disciplines uh, such as chemistry, engineering, uh, medicine, uh, the biological, physical sciences uh, was needed to, uh, to just help uh, people know who was indeed a practitioner. So they developed uh, a corporation and uh, a board certification, which is which requires a presentation of academic credentials, a minimum of a bachelor's degree in a physical science, uh, and at least five years of experience under 
uh, a certified industrial hygienist, and uh, passing uh, a two-day examination. So that's kind of the difference. Uh, one is a professional degree, and the other is uh, an adopted uh, name. Right, Larry, I'm curious. Are you familiar with? Uh, I think there's a few states that actually have some kind of IH designation. Are you familiar with that at all? Uh, well, the uh, the next level of professional designation, of course, is that that's. Uh, given by the states, it's not a federal licensing, or not a federal program, because licensing of uh, people within a state is a state right. So uh, most states have uh, some form of board of state licensure, and uh, they license anything from beauticians, barbers, uh, to professional engineers and physicians, uh, and uh, much the same as the certification uh, rubric, uh, you have to pass an, a, a, a review of your credentials and an examination or series of examinations that uh, will allow you to, uh, to carry the designation. Uh, for example, in Pennsylvania, it's illegal to call yourself an engineer unless you have uh, passed a professional engineering uh, licensure examination doesn't matter if you were graduated as an engineer to be to to practice as an engineer and do things like stamp drawings uh, requires uh, the the state licensure. So that's a, a little bit of difference. And I believe uh, Maryland has uh, some form of licensure program, and uh, a couple of other states. Uh, Illinois, I believe, and uh, perhaps, uh, uh, well, I think those are the those are the two that come to mind. I think perhaps Tennessee might, but I'm not sure. Yeah, the reason I asked is I I ran into that issue. I believe it was Missouri, so Illinois, and Missouri, pretty close together. One of those. Um, I was doing a course out there, and one of the gentlemen that was a presenter. Um, had he was an industrial hygienist he called himself an industrial hygienist and we started to talk about the same issue and he said oh no we do have a state i guess license for industrial hygienists so i wasn't aware of that at the time and i think it's important for listeners to know that you know you've got the certified industrial hygienist you do have some states that license people as industrial hygienists very few and then you have others that call themselves an industrial hygienist, uh, whether it's deserved or not, I guess, is um, a buyer beware kind of thing. Larry, um, most people relate the word hygiene to cleanliness. Can you comment on the connection between the word hygiene and one's occupation or the industry in which one works? Well, uh, the origins of uh the need for industrial hygiene went back to uh, the origins of the chemical industry. Uh, in fact, uh, that the cradle of the chem chemical industry, uh, uh, although it'll blow a trivia question for you, was actually up around Bradford, Pennsylvania, where they uh, did a lot of distillation of wood and wood products uh, because of the forest there. But in any event, uh, as we began to use more and more chemicals, particularly post uh, in uh, World War One, for example, for uh, 
the doping and so forth of aircraft uh, fabric, uh, there uh, was more and more of a need for people to pay attention to such things as chemical exposure and what we would term the chemical environment today. Uh, the word hygiene uh, came about because no one uh, really had a better name. Uh, there was a uh, fellowship uh, that uh, devoted itself at the Mellon Institute, funded by Union Carbide, that was actually called the Chemical Hygiene Fellowship. Uh, uh, the uh, father of that program happened to have been the same Henry Smith that founded the Board of Industrial Hygiene. So I suspect that there was uh, somewhat of a connection there because in his mind, uh, chemical hygiene uh, described uh, the necessary uh, activities to protect people uh, and address the issue of chemical cleanliness as well as what would traditionally be more associated with biological cleanliness. I understand you had a, an incident that occurred that kind of uh, relates to the issue of the name industrial hygiene. Can you Expand on that for us a little bit, or tell us that story. Well, uh, it it as I, did, I told you, it is a it is a confusing thing. It's a a problem that the profession of industrial hygiene's been wrestling with for many years, and trying to develop uh, some alternative names. Uh, and of course, uh, there are two countries that primarily had uh, industrial hygiene, and that was the UK and uh, the United States. Well, I did a lot of traveling for my former employer, and uh, I was uh, traveled to a plant in France, and all they knew about me was I was an industrial hygienist, and they were to provide me access to the entire facility. One of the facilities the plant manager felt that an industrial hygienist should certainly be interested in uh, were the restrooms, and uh, he started with the ladies' restroom that was populated at the time and created a little stir for me. I had a sensational introduction of industrial hygiene to France. And this was not fitting for the uh, reputation, I guess. Uh, that's great. Doc Dietrich, uh, are you still with us out there? Oh, yes. Anything you'd like to add at this point? Well, I happen to have a Webster's uh, New Collegiate Dictionary in front of me, uh -huh. and very interestingly, it's the first time I see that. Under hygiene, it says, a science of the establishment and maintenance of health. That's what it says, which is kind of interesting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And is that the first or the second? You know, I'm kind of curious. You know how they have the first definition, second, second definition? Well... The second one is condition of practices conductive to health. Interesting. Okay. That's, yeah, the first time I looked that up. So in other words, we have, we have the right word, but the word is not well known by a lot of people. Yeah, but if you look at the next word, which in the, I'm looking at the Oxford Dictionary. Well, wow, you have the real not, thing. Not, <laughs> not no, but the next word actually, I think, is a better definition. It's actually right after hygiene comes hygienist, and the hygienist is a specialist in cleanliness for the preservation of health. And then they went into uh, 
They gave a definition, which I think moves away from the point, which was dental hygienist. So, <laughs> in any event, uh, yeah, these terms are confusing. For sure. no, I think it's it's more the the uh, applications of the term rather than people dealing with the definition. Uh, if you talk about the Kleenex, you're going to think of tissue. Uh, but if you say facial tissue. People don't really know too much of what you're talking about. Right, absolutely. Dieter um, or Larry, either one. I, you, Larry mentioned uh, Henry Smith, and um, I'm curious whether or not Dieter gave me a book a while back um, on Alice Hamilton, and I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about her role in developing this this uh, you know, this. Uh, industry there this designation i guess well larry you want to start out you know henry actually better you uh, you worked with him well i, I, I worked for him anyway. well, I, don't yeah. you, I don't think anybody worked with uh, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> he uh he certainly uh had a very uh high opinion of his work and deservedly so but uh alice hamilton was actually uh, a physician and started the first uh, university-level occupational health program at MIT and uh, also taught, I believe, at Harvard. And uh, She uh, was uh, very concerned about uh, workplaces, and, of course, at that time, New England was a cradle of uh, industry and uh, the industrial activities of the day, and uh, she was known to march into... Uh, president and board of and CEOs offices and demand that uh, they straighten things out a bit. So she was certainly one of the early uh, folks that was involved in industrial hygiene. And again, coming at it purely from the medical perspective, she wasn't trained in this area. She just happened to be charged with uh, a number of folks who were heavily involved with uh, chemicals and uh, workplace kinds of issues. Dieter, what was the full title of that book? That's a great book for any of our listeners to, to pick up. Uh, it, that is uh, Exploring the Dangerous Trades, uh, which not only is a history of occupational health in the United States, it's very well written. I love her. She was a prolific writer. And I talked, I never met that woman. I would have loved to meet her. Dynamite lady. But I know that Henry Smith uh, met with her and they had luncheons together and perhaps even a drink knowing Henry. That would not be impossible. <laughs> and um, uh, so, and, and you know, he told me a little bit about her that you know, she was you know, down to earth and I believe that. But yeah, if anybody wants to, to read up on it, uh, the book, when I had to read it, Larry and, for Larry and for me, it was um, required reading. The only copy in Pittsburgh was in the rare book department of the library where you got locked in, you had to have gloves on, and so on. Fortunately, the book has been republished by the University of Pittsburgh Press and is now available again in uh, paperback. And that was Exploring the Dangerous Trades by Alice Hamilton, by, I believe. By Alice Hamilton, yes. Great. Bill, did you have a question? Um, no, I I just thought that maybe Larry could explain a little bit. I see he has a designation here, CSP. 
what could you tell me about CSB and how can their knowledge help with IAQ problems? Oh, Bill, you just stepped into your own trap, I believe. I don't know. <laughs> well, hanging around with you guys is all the acronyms. Acronym police. What is that CSP thing, Larry? Well, CSP is Certified Safety Professional, and it's uh, very much like the uh, Certified Industrial Hygienist designation. It's uh, given by the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. Uh, the Board of Certified Safety Professionals came about uh, quite a bit later than the Board of Industrial Hygiene. And uh, I guess the difference that I would make, and uh, the lines get very blurred as uh, people uh, sort of expand their horizons, uh, re-engineer their uh, jobs and so forth, uh, this, the certified safety professional was generally more directed at physical hazards rather than chemical hazards. It's probably the easiest way to, to describe it. Things like uh, uh, tripping, whether the crane falls over when you uh, try to make a lift. Uh, uh, the uh, I guess those folks from New York just found out that it can happen in Pittsburgh, huh? And yes, they can. Uh, <laughs> You know, strength of materials sorts of things was uh, a very large part of uh, the safety practice and still is, of course. Uh, however, uh, you know, with the uh, crossover of people and, uh, and so forth, there's been really a graying of the differences between the two disciplines. And, uh, you know, I think the... Uh, uh, the professional group associated with them is the American Society of Safety Engineers, whereas in industrial hygiene, it's the uh, American Industrial Hygiene Association, the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. So there, there's a blurring of the line, and uh, that's uh, that's pretty much the state of things right now. Larry, a lot of our listeners are in the indoor environmental quality consulting or contracting arena. And since you are very familiar with both the CIH and the CSP designations, and they run into these designations, and some of them are looking at moving on to try and attain one of these designations, which I'm just curious, which is more difficult, which is more applicable toward indoor environmental quality, and which is more difficult? Probably the CIH would be more uh, by virtue of uh, the type of training, the type of disciplines that are required. The, the industrial hygienist would be more appropriately associated with indoor air quality issues because uh, the industrial hygienist has been devoted to indoor air quality, outdoor air quality, plant air quality, uh, since its inception, whereas uh, I don't believe the, the safety profession has come into this uh, somewhat more recently. Uh, the difficulty in drawing designations and drawing lines, and just I ha hasten to say this before you start getting cards and letters, <laughs> or I do, uh, the, the difference I think that uh, you have to look at is that there uh, both professions are not true uh, singular sciences. They draw upon uh, 
uh, pieces and and areas of other sciences uh, to greater or lesser degrees. Uh, but there is a crossover, and a good example that I might give you is uh, if we think about dust particulate. Uh, the industrial hygienist is primarily controlled with concerned with particle size. Uh, whether or not the dust can be inhaled uh, presents uh, uh, a, a problem in air quality. Uh, will it deposit and remain in the lung? Whereas the safety professional uh, probably in its history was concerned with dust, but uh, airborne dust primarily from the point of view of did it create an explosive atmosphere. So both come to the same uh, matrix to work with, the same uh, place where they put their hands perhaps for different reasons. And I think that results in a lot of the crossover that you see and uh, I think we have to be pretty honest that the distinctions are are made by people who have an interest in making distinctions, not uh, in in any uh, breakdown in or or distinction in physical or chemical laws. This question, I guess, could go to both Larry and Dieter, and and you know, if you don't know the answer. Uh, you know, just go ahead and wing it with with with, with a, you know a feeling because I I think that that's fine. It's really an opinion question. Would this blurring that occurs between you know CSPs and IHs and CIHs and and so on and so forth, uh, is the field growing or is the field reducing? Are there more CIHs and CI uh, CSPs now than there used to be? Is this you know the, um, or is the field declining in numbers? I'll let Dieter start on that one. He knows I have a soapbox. Yeah. Well, there are a couple of interesting developments. In fact, Joe probably can pick that up because Joe was on committees uh, and we went in the indoor air quality through certifications and the whole acrobatics that the old-timers did, that the Henry Smiths, you know, years ago, with getting uh, certified. There are a couple of interesting developments, and I don't know whether that is good, bad, or even indifferent. That's a wonderful introduction, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and it, what is interesting to me is that the passing rate of the new uh, industrial hygienists who are sitting for the CIH exam is going down. And it is, I think, somewhere, I haven't looked at their statistics in quite some time, but I think it's down to something like 40% passing, which is down from uh, about 20 years ago when it was a 60 to 65% passing rate. Now, I do not know, and I have not seen the new tests. Are they more difficult? Um, are the uh, students less prepared? That is certainly a possibility. And so I think uh, we have a pretty stable population of uh, certified industrial hygienists. Uh, there are a couple of uh, uh, programs which are not doing very well. Uh, anymore, like at the University of Pittsburgh, where we, for all practical purposes, have closed the industrial hygiene department. 
Larry and I graduated from that department. And there are a couple of other schools who have uh, uh, problems recruiting uh, good students. Maybe they can get another job uh, yeah, faster and make more money than going uh, to specialized training as an industrial hygienist. So that's that's where it stands right now, and I let Larry take uh, uh, over there. Well, I think uh, Dieter uh, touched on a couple of the key issues. Uh, first of all, uh, I think one of the essential elements of any profession, uh, or whether it is a pure profession or an applied profession, is that it has some sustaining uh, academic base. And when I say academic base, I mean somebody's got to be doing research to sort out uh, the real problems from the guest at problems and to work toward the solutions uh, in a very systematic way. I believe from what I've seen that because government funding has not been emphasized, particularly at the federal level and in the field of occupational health and safety generally, that we have lost a lot of that uh, academic base. So you no longer have the colleges and universities interested in uh, training people in industrial hygiene, in safety, etc., even occupational medicine. There's a large demand for occupational physicians. However, the uh, required financial support for training physicians is just not there. And uh, I can maybe uh, what I would consider to be sort of objective validation of that uh, uh, issue is that uh, I think there are some bills before Congress right now where they're trying to expand the uh, impact of the occupational safety and health structure and try to bring it up to maybe 10% of that, which the EPA enjoys. Uh, EPA uh, has really made uh, its, its presence felt. Uh, industrial hygiene did but then funding and research sort of faded away. I think there's probably a dilution of the fields right now by a lot of people who are good at taking a test and have not been given that basic foundation in the uh, scientific method applied to occupational health that they really need to develop the gut instincts. So all they can do is read regulations, read meters, and make pronouncements. That's very unsatisfying to people, and, and I think it wears pretty thin. So uh, maybe that's why the, the pass rate is lower, uh, because you don't have people being trained uh, at the in the academic institutions. Uh, I, I think that that's very true. Uh, things are certainly as, as at least or more complex when you start considering things like mold or nanotechnologies and things of that nature that are certainly extremely challenging. Who do you go to right now to, uh, to sort those things out? Uh, pretty pretty uh, 
pretty interesting area to try to solve and not something that I think we could deal with here. But suffice to say that I think colleges and universities don't have the financial, financially driven interest in training students, and that just ripples throughout the whole profession. You, you touched on what I was curious about, Larry, and that is that um, the areas of expertise or the areas of knowledge that you would have to be familiar with seem to have expanded. And when you add in biological or microbiological and nanotechnology, do you think maybe that has that's part of the reason that um, the fail rate's down? There's just a whole heck of a lot more information to cover? Well, actually, I, I think that, no, that's, that's not the problem. I think the problem really is that the fundamental preparation just isn't being offered. Uh, you have to really work pretty hard to get uh, the kind of comprehensive leveling of backgrounds that uh, Dieter and I got uh, almost 40 years ago at the University of Pittsburgh when it was the one of the premier schools of industrial hygiene. I see. And what about on the safety professional side? How do you see that coming along? Are there more? It seems to me there's more programs with the OSHA outreach and some of the universities. Um, like I, I'm familiar with the IUP program here in the Pennsylvania area. Are I don't you, know whether IUP is even still operating that program. Are they, Joe? I, you know, I think I, I heard that it was kind of closed. Well, I you probably know better than I. I have not heard a great deal from them recently. I know they were recently um, awarded the OSHA outreach. They were are one of the OSHA outreach centers, at least uh, as of three or four years ago, because I remember WVU wasn't real happy about that. I was working with them at the time. I don't know if they still have a, a degree program, so that's uh, that's a good question. They do have the de- the safety sciences degree program, uh, and I believe that that certainly is is moving along. I don't think they have as many uh, students as they used to, but uh, they still do have the program. Uh, I thought that OSHA had cut back some of the funding to the point where the outreach program uh, wasn't funded. I could be wrong. Okay. Well, let's... You know, Larry, speak, speaking of OSHA, uh, in your current work, and, and Dieter, I would like you to comment as well, which government agency are you running into the most? Is it EPA? Is it OSHA? Is it local health departments? Uh, you know, Department of Transportation? You know, who, do you, who are you running into? Who seems to be doing most of the enforcement these days, most of the investigations? Well, I am uh, involved uh, mainly with OSHA issues, uh, be it asbestos. I have a, a client. In fact, I have to finish a report for them uh, where I do quarterly uh, airborne lead sampling. Uh, so those are all under the auspices of, 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 of OSHA. And while I'm over there, I'm familiar with the problems they have, uh, the safety and the training of um, forklift drivers, for instance. And <clears throat> I, I don't get any calls anymore 
or very few calls on EPA issues. I don't know why. Uh, times I was involved with super fund uh, funds and issues like that. Uh, we had a very active uh, group here in Pittsburgh in the Allegheny County Health Department. They were very much interested in um, particulate and smoke emissions and, and, and clean air issues. That kind of has trickled down, even though I just heard um, a couple of days ago, Pittsburgh is still a good place to live, but after Los Angeles, we are still the most polluted place in the United States. I can't believe it. Wow. So uh, that's you know, where that stands right now. Larry, I, I, well, go ahead. I, well, and I'm on the legal side. Of course, OSHA is the gold, whether you like it or not, OSHA is the gold standard. You now, you look at it, and I said, hey, well, my client, oh, yeah, he did everything right under OSHA. Should he have done more? Maybe, but that is really usually not the issue. The issue are, you know, the federal laws uh, protecting and governing uh, a company. Larry, are you yeah. seeing the same kind of trend? Uh, the trend that I've seen has been, and uh, you know, maybe sidestep a little bit. The trend that I've seen has been to develop the environmental health and safety uh, person uh, at the university. For example, uh, as director of environmental health and safety, uh, I had to interface locally with the county officials. Uh, at the federal level now, uh, you uh, deal with biological safety in the CDC. Of course, uh, depending on the jurisdiction, you may may or may not deal with OSHA because OSHA, of course, does not reach into state-related agencies or state agencies unless they allow them. Uh, but you also deal with Department of Transportation because there's a lot of shipping of chemicals and biologicals back and forth. Uh, you deal with the agencies on animal care and welfare, uh, Department of Agriculture. So there are many, many agencies that have some area of environment, health, or safety associated with them where there is a need for practitioners uh, that are uh, pretty well-based pretty soundly based in, in uh, the, you know, what I would call and Dieter would probably recognize also as the industrial hygiene kind of a, a framework where you look at what kind of exposures exist, how do the exposures occur, how can they be mitigated. Uh, I think most of the air pollution and water pollution kinds of things uh, has been pretty much moved over into the civil and environmental engineering disciplines. Yeah, I, I see that. Certainly there are uh, many more companies out there which specialize in that arena, and that is just fine with me. <clears throat> but when Dieter and I went to graduate school, there are things that, you would now associate with environmental engineering were considered to be public health issues. Yeah. And uh, now they are no longer in schools of public health, which is probably another reason for some of this shift in emphasis. 
Well, that was another question I had for you, Larry. As you know, you were um, and still are affiliated with and a professor at the Graduate School of Public Health. Is indoor air quality and indoor air quality issues a part of the curriculum for the master? What would it be, the MPH program, or uh, what other programs were you involved with there? Well, we developed. Uh we, we had a program in risk assessment the, that could pretty much masquerade as the as at least big components of an industrial hygiene program. Uh, that program is still somewhat emphasized. They have a DRPH and an MPH program, Doctor of Public Health and Master of Public Health program. Uh, the Masters of Public Health program is one that I worked on get in start get started I'm not sure where that one is heading right now uh, it is tending to be uh, in terms of industrial hygiene kinds of things more associated with the EPA uh, exposure assessment kind of issues than the traditional occupational emphasis uh, so it does get more into environment uh, and uh, and transport and fate of chemicals through the environment than uh, the traditional industrial hygiene program would have. Can I get both your thoughts on multi-chemical sensitivity and, and your experience with that? Well, Larry can talk to you about that one for about an hour or more. <laughs> <laughs> We've had well, I, we've had guests on uh, several times that you know are firm believers, and uh, then we've had guests that weren't so sure. And uh, Larry, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that you know you're talking about fundamentally differences in individuals, and there is probably a segment of the population that uh, will be sensitive to a wide array of chemicals. Uh, I, I don't believe that there is a magic bullet chemical that sensitizes an individual to all chemicals. I think it's a matter of perhaps susceptibility and uh, you know, someone being overexposed. The uh, Unfortunately, I think that many of the uh, crises of the day that come come along are jumped on by people who want to make make a few bucks, and they uh, don't really get the science to move along with them, and uh, that creates a lot of doubt, and the doubt creates a lot of churn and noise, and it makes it very difficult to make a good scientific decision. I, I think that uh, the medical community certainly, by and large, does not believe it. Uh, as an industrial hygienist, uh, I don't have any way of dealing with uh, sorting out multiple chemicals, putting them together into a, a nice array that I could consider in terms of exposure and 
say that this person who has a multiple chemical sensitivity will react to this particular cocktail of chemicals. What percentage, Larry, of, of people in the general population, you know, and I know this is just an estimate, what, what percentage of people in the general population would you think would fit into that profile? Well, that depends on whether your criteria is diagnosed by lawyers or diagnosed by doctors. <laughs> <laughs> lawyers do a lot of diagnosis, unfortunately. But we uh, probably less than one percent, and I don't. I, I, that would be my guess. The reason I say that, uh, if there were a larger percentage, I think we would be seeing a lot more people who are reacting than the people that we do. To be quite honest about it, the only people that I've ever heard of in terms of multiple chemical sensitivity have been associated with some lawsuit. I know, Dieter, maybe you have different experience. No, not really. I know about true sensitizations. Uh, as you may remember, when we looked at isocyanates produced and marketed and sold by uh, uh, the Bayer Chemical Corporation, and I found out that I'm still highly sensitive to uh, I, um, um, poison ivy because I touched one and it's all over me again. <laughs> but I'm not sensitive to anything else. Um, I yeah I I have I have come across it when I talked to lawyers about this and that and the other. And I am also, I'm not convinced that there is really something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and can be, how should I say, I don't want to say proven, but can be medically established that there is really something wrong. I mean, I, I, I do believe that there are people who are incredibly sensitive for whatever reason. Like I always say, maybe they were dealt a lousy hand the day they were born, and... Um, yeah, they they are super sensitive to this and that and the other. I don't know their biochemistry. I don't know anything about it. I just know that they suffer. And what do you do with a poor person like that? I don't know. Well, you know, those are people who typically would have removed themselves in one way or another from an exposure. And uh, I think... Dieter and I agree absolutely on that. Certainly there are sensitizing chemicals, and uh, but this idea of multiple chemical sensitivity caused by you know, sort of single chemical exposure is a little more difficult because you would have to prove the same route of uptake, the same physiological responses, and... Uh, that's you know we're we're pretty complex beings when it comes to our immune system. We recognize different kinds of bugs differently, and uh, so I think the same is true of chemicals. Yeah. Uh, the the other question that that came up, and I think that is a good one, is the knowledge that we developed from industry applicable to indoor air, and probably the easiest way to um, get a handle on that is. Or, 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 or separate the two, is you know, in industry we have relatively high exposures as compared to indoor air, of course. You know, in, the, in the industrial environment we have, by and large, 
Yeah. Pretty healthy Americans. They are not from uh, 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 Central Africa where the life expectancy is 34 years or something like that. And, you know, we have outlawed uh, child labor and we retire old people. So they, we have a pretty healthy uh, uh, people over there. But if you go to the indoor environment, where, of course, you have to assume that everybody is exposed, whether they are 100 years old or one day old. But uh, still, and uh, in, uh, there are two chapters in uh, the, one of the latest books over here. Joe knows the title. Uh, from uh, Larry and my uh, teacher, Dr. Allery, Eve Allery, who does use a model from which he predicts tolerable good exposure, in quotation marks, for industry, and uh, that can be extrapolated to the indoor environment. So we, we shouldn't throw those things away that we learned from high exposures, at least we know what the action is, and you don't only look at one single number, be it for carbon monoxide or benzene or you know, any one of those. You know, look at the documentation of these numbers and see what the action was and see what the people have learned having studied uh, these chemicals, in some instances, for 100 years. So don't throw it out the window. We've got a uh, text question, just to go back for a moment to the multiple chemical issue, multiple chemical sensitivity issue. How do you separate a possible multiple semi multiple chemical sensitivity issue from a psychosomatic issue? Well, there was actually some work done on that uh, by Johns Hopkins, uh, and it's like any other trigger, uh, you have to. I'm I, I'm way a far afield from industrial hygiene here, but the the basic understanding that I have is that you have to be able to sort out whether it's simply the presence of the trigger and it's acting as a trigger, or there's some physiological change. And probably uh, to use the example of isocyanates that Dieter mentioned. If someone starts to respond to uh, an, uh, an environment where it says there's isocyanate present, uh, the only way that you can really tell is to see if their immune system uh, is responding or if, it is, if it's just the person responding. Hasten to say, the difficulty there is our ability to make the measurements. I see. Now... Both of you are expert witnesses, and one of the things I like to try and uh, <clears throat> excuse me get get from you is uh, some tips for any listeners that you know they end up from time to time, unfortunately, being called into court to testify for whatever reason. It might be as a fact witness, it may be as a, an expert witness. What kind of tips would you give those that are fairly new to uh, these? types of proceedings uh, to make them a more effective witness? Well, I can start that one off. Um, I, um, I have worked with, uh, I've, I've been an expert witness now for 30 years or something like that. And, and in fact, Larry and I worked together with, uh, in, in, on several issues and, 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 and cases. 
And to me, the number one thing is, A, it got to be a good lawyer, it got to be an ethical lawyer, and I want to work with a lawyer. Somebody who hired me called me and I said, Dr. Weil, Dr. Weil, can I hire you? And I said, yeah. He said, I need you as an expert witness. And I said, by the way, what kind of a witness are you? Can I just parade you in and ask you questions, or would you like to talk to me? Well, <laughs> and I don't know how many hours Larry and I spend with lawyers being prepared. If you don't have the roadmap and you don't know where the lawyer wants to go and you didn't tell the lawyer what to ask and what you think is important for your case, to make the right impression. Like I said that earlier during another show, it has nothing to do with laws and, and, and stuff like that anymore. It's a show that is going on. And if you are not comfortable, you're going to be a lousy uh, expert witness. Well, I think, you know, Dieter's is absolutely correct. And as an expert witness, the first thing that you have to do, in my opinion, is to educate the lawyer that's hiring you to know uh, your limitations and the fact that uh, there may come a point where you're going to say you don't have a case and I'm going to be the worst witness uh, that you have uh, in this case. So uh, you, as an expert, I think you're obliged to first Tell the truth and make sure that it's the truth as, as best you know it. Make sure that uh, the attorney you're working with understands that before you get into it. If uh, you don't believe in the case, don't take it. Yep. Uh, I have turned away cases where people wanted to just simply beat the truth into me. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you want to live to fight another day and keep your integrity, uh, you you really can't get branded uh, as someone who who always uh, sides in one direction or another. I'll take cases on either side. Uh, most of the time, I get hired by defendants, uh, but that's no different than anything else. Uh, uh, but the best thing to do is to make darn sure that uh, you, when you're asked if you, you can participate, find out what it is, see what you know, if you can contribute, by all means explain the level of your contribution. If you're going to hurt, explain the fact that you don't believe this, and if the attorney wants to, uh, wants to go forward, they should find somebody else. What about if you're called in as just a fact witness? You've written a report, there's some kind of lawsuit, and you have to answer questions about your report. Well, I've done that on many, many occasions. In fact, uh, because of my employment, I was often both a fact and an expert witness. And, uh, you know, your report pretty much has to speak for itself. And the only way that you, the only opportunity you have to change your report is when you write it. So the best advice I can give you there is when you're writing a report, make darn sure that you include the facts, you interpret the facts accurately uh, as at, at, as best you can at the time and, uh, you know, understand that you may face that report sometime in the future. Uh, and, you, I, and you will, guaranteed. 
I've seen my name on many, many yep. documents. Some I remember having signed, some I don't. But uh, in all cases, when you know the information on the four corners of that page has to speak for itself, and uh, you can explain what was going on. You know, one of the things that uh, I think is important is to understand and convey the state of the art. You know, if someone says, well, uh, let me say, take Dr. Weil over the coals here and say, Dr. Weil, isn't it true that, uh, that uh, silica is something that will cause uh, damage to the lung? And in, wasn't, isn't it true in uh, 1952 someone measured uh, 3 million particles per cubic foot? Now, isn't that an astounding number? Would anybody today be exposed to 3 million particles per cubic foot? And Dieter would have to respond to that. Well, yeah. And, you know, say, well, excuse me, but, you know, that was the only measurement that was available, and let's look at uh, what kind of comparative we have. The standard at that time was 5 million particles per cubic foot. So whatever it was they were measuring, comparatively speaking, that wasn't an overexposure. That's what I can tell you. Well, that is that is always one of the things that bothers me. Like I said, it has nothing to do with justice and the law anymore. You know, what standard of care do we apply today? Am I responsible uh, for uh, 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 today for exposures that happened 60 years ago when I didn't even know what industrial hygiene, occupational health or a part per million, or a milligram per cubic meter, what that was. And that always bothers me. You know, they, they pull people in and they said, hey, you should have known, and uh, you, you have, I, I guess, develop your own methodology to be more sensitive, to be more accurate. And uh, to me, that doesn't sound fair. Before we go, we've got a little little bit of time left. Larry, I, I've got a quick question for you. You were at the Graduate School of Public Health. You also managed and were in charge of management of numerous facilities. Is mold a public health issue? Sure it is. It can be. Uh, is, is its mere existence a public health issue? It's like anything else. It's how much and where it is and who's going to encounter it. Uh, it's it's a tremendous public health issue uh, when you have uh, a disaster like Katrina, and that's, uh, you know, mold is uh, just rampant there, and people who are cleaning up, people who are coming back uh, have to be very careful, or they're, they're going to be uh, uh, attacked by mold, because mold does attack other, attack other beasts. If if it didn't attack biological systems, uh, we wouldn't have uh, the uh, uh, degradation of the wood uh, fall and the leaves and that sort of thing. So, an athlete's foot. <laughs> it's it's nasty. It can be nasty, but it doesn't have to be. And you know, I I guess the best thing to say is I think mold follows the same dictum as. Old Paracelsus taught us in the 16th century, only the dose makes the poison. The difference between a poison and a remedy is the, is the dose. And I might uh, 
you know, with respect to mold, uh, the uh, the anti-rejection drugs that are used for transplant people are mold-derived. Yeah, there are powerful toxins in there, no doubt about it. Cyclosporin is a mold-derived uh, medication. Yep. And, uh, and, and, and it screws up your immune system intentionally that you don't reject. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that's certainly interesting, and uh, we always enjoy having both of you on the show. Before we go, um, is there anything, Larry, that you'd like to add? I mean, I we wanted to go into some, you know, some of your horror stories from managing hundreds of facilities at the university. Uh, any stand out in your mind? Well, uh, I guess uh, the 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 most difficult thing that I have I ever had to deal with was anything where there were, was a possibility of student uh, injury or or illness, and uh, I had uh, a couple of those kinds of things that were near misses. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, a university is like a city in itself. It has its own electrical system, gas system, steam system, people all over the place, buildings, buildings. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you have all the problems that people bring. Including now, unfortunately, the types of things that happened at Virginia Tech here recently. Unfortunately. Well, that that goes into the area of uh, of the psychiatrist. I think uh, if they can fix people's minds, then uh, then we'll gone a long way. Anything you'd like to add before we go, Larry? Well, I, I think that uh, anyone interested in the indoor air quality business uh, and serious about it uh, should. Uh, Look to uh, getting some good educational background uh, and uh, make sure that uh, they do well by themselves and do well by the profession that they've chosen. And I think things will be fine for all of us now and into the future. Well, thank you for that. And uh, before we go, how can listeners contact you if they would like to or if that's okay with you? Well, you can send me an email at lwkcih at aol.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Larry. And, Dieter, before we go, anything you'd like to add? No, well, I certainly second uh, uh, Larry's uh, remarks there. Uh, uh, education, education, education. And yeah, just if, if you go to a university, try to learn something, not just to pass uh, courses. Um, fortunately, when Larry and I went to school, we were a handful of students, and we had about 20 professors, instructors, teachers, whatever you want to call them. That was heaven on earth, and I don't think those situations um, uh, exist anymore. We had we had good funding from EPA, from uh, NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and from the EPA. So uh, that was that was almost an ideal situation. All right. Well, thanks to both of you gentlemen. And I want to quickly remind our listeners about a couple of things coming up here. One, 
We'll be back next noon at Friday as usual. Secondly, um, we are doing some, I am actually, Radio Joe's going on the road. I'm going on the road next week to do some renewal credit training. We're going to actually take some of the old shows and uh, get a group of people renewal credits for their IAQ council certifications. And uh, we are certainly willing to talk to others about doing the same thing. You can email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at IAQ Training for more information on that program. I've also just recently scheduled a certification renewal course up at the uh, Indian Lake Resort and Lodge on June 21st of this summer. So anybody who wants to uh, grab some renewal credits and at the same time uh, relax around the lake or maybe go shoot around a golf, join us on uh, June 21st. I think we may actually try and put one on every uh, every month this summer if I can pull it off if I can get a few people up and uh, we've got a great uh, host uh, facility up there and looking forward to that event with um, those announcements and uh, I want to say first of all thanks to Cliff Slotnick uh, my co-host down in Florida for joining us taking time away uh, is Cliff still on the line there Yes, so you're very welcome as always. We uh, really appreciate you taking time out from connections, although you probably appreciated taking time out more than we did. (laughs) 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 Thanks, as always, to the Z-Man for helping us. We'll look forward to having you back in your chair here next week. Thanks to Unsmoke Instructor Extraordinaire and the uh, acronym police, Bill Wagon here. It's always a pleasure, Bill. All right. And, of course, thanks to CJ, our cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Check us out at uh, iaqradio.com. And please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 